Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. You want to know what the best email marketing service is for your small business? Well, I've got the team for you. Emailtooltester.com is the place to find reviews and tutorials of newsletter services like ActiveCampaign, MailChimp, GetResponse, and many more. Download their free comparison spreadsheet that will help you find the best email marketing service among many providers. Just Google Email Tool Tester Comparison Template to find it. Again, just Google it. Email Tool Tester Comparison Template to find it. You know, I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis and they have a look back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. On the show today, I've got Kristen Beck. He's the executive partner overseeing growth strategy and design at Innovate Map. We talk a lot about design and UX and how he got into that field and why he doesn't feel like he's necessarily a marketer, even though he's responsible for marketing. We talk about how technology scale is outpacing our human cognition and why that matters and what makes a good product and much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Christian Beck. Christian, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here to talk uh, marketing, which, uh, you know, it's not necessarily my expertise, but I will definitely talk about it. <laughs> well, I, th- I thought we would start there because this is a marketing podcast, but I know you don't see yourself as a marketer, but you're executive partner focused on growth strategy and design for innovate maps so like why do you not see yourself as a marketer that's a good question maybe i need to just uh 
Yeah, maybe that's a me problem. <laughs> um, <laughs> my background is design. So my education is in interaction design. So today, mostly call it UX design or product design. And I kind of shifted into marketing as you know, co-founding the Innovate Map Agency, just kind of moving into that because the agency growth became more of my passion than design itself. So yeah, I think it's just one of those things where I kind of shifted into it in my career. And I, and I don't know that I still fully identify uh, as a marketer. But yeah, I, I suppose for all intents and purposes that I am a, a marketer today. I guess your your start was in design. What was it about design or UX? Like, where did you even get the idea that that was a field you could go into? My mom, <laughs> which is actually, you know, mostly true. You know, I started college in 2000 and I didn't really know what I was doing. I was majoring in pre-law because my father's a lawyer and uh, I like to argue. So I was like, well, I guess I'll probably just do that. <laughs> and that was about as much as I thought about it. And I struggled uh, in college for a while because I didn't like it. And around that time, there was a new degree that came out called informatics. And this is at Indiana University. And it was really the study of, you know, sort of technology and people. And that really resonated with me. And then through that, I took a, you know, software design course. And this is 2003. So, I mean, this is, this is a long time ago, you know, pre-mobile and, and all, all that. And really before the internet really like took off to what it is today. So, you know, at that time, design was interesting to me because I, I like technology, but I didn't really want to be a, a programmer or, or in, in hardware. But I really liked what it could do for people. Um, you know, people was always my interest in how you can bring things to life, you know, how it affects, you know, the social structures, the way we interact with each other. And design was the way I found that you can actually do that intentionally. So you can actually, that's when I discovered, oh, you can design things to, to help guide people into certain ways. So that's kind of the long story, but my, oh, I forgot to mention my mom. So where it came from was when I was struggling, my mother was teaching at a different Indiana University campus uh, and she heard about it and she sent me this email uh, about informatics. And so I was like, oh, that looks interesting. So I, I pretty much have her to thank for for helping me find that field to begin with. That's funny. I, I, sometimes I guess our mothers know us better than we know ourselves. <laughs> yeah, I would probably say more than sometimes, probably all the time. That's, you know, we're, we're all on a journey to discover that uh, reality. Some of us learn it earlier than others, I guess. It's interesting that you found your way to UX or, or human-centered design. At what kinds of classes were you taking during this time? I mean, I was a psych undergrad major, and within psychology, there's human-computer interaction classes and like perceptual classes and things like that, like how we perceive things, et cetera. I, I'm curious if your classes were a mix of like different disciplines or not. Definitely, they were, and I think without getting too academic, I think every interaction design program in the in the U.S. at least, and that, and it's a little bit different in Europe and Asia. But most of them are kind of born out of, you know, some different type of science. You know, some will come from psychology, some more anthropology, some from computer science. And then that kind of flavors what it is. But at Indiana, it was uh, very uh, mixed between anthropology, psychology, and I would say even a little bit of sociology. So there's a lot of sort of ethics uh, involved. There's courses like that. So it was definitely a mix. And, and you're right. Um, a lot of you know, interaction design is rooted in psychology, how we make decisions, you know, why we make decisions. But as technology got, I would say, more collaborative, uh, anthropology came up more. And you see that a lot today 
with remote work collaboration software. So that was starting to gain steam when I was there as well, because now we need to understand, you know, how do people you know, cooperate? How do they work together? Um, how is culture represented through technology? And so that was where anthropology came in. So coursework was really a mix of all that. And then, you know, the arts, you know, come into play on how you actually design things, visual interfaces or, or interactions and things like that. Last time we talked, you made this comment that I'd love to get you to like go a little deeper with me on, which was, I, I believe I've got this right. Technology scale outpaces human cognition. I was just noodling this since our last conversation. And I think there's a, it's pretty profound statement. Wow. Well, I, I don't know that <laughs> anything I've said has been described as profound. So thank you for that. You're welcome. <laughs> so a few years ago, I read this book by Thomas Friedman, who writes about a lot of things, you know, politics and, and technology, but he had written this book called Thriving in the Age of Acceleration. And it was really thought provoking in that it kind of described how the accelerating pace of technology will have profound you know, changes or impact on government, society, education, all of that. And so when I thought about that, I thought that sort of was what I was experiencing as a designer in technology. You know, my master's degree, I got that in 2007, one month before the first iPhone was even announced. And so smartphones were, were pretty small scale. BlackBerry was still dominating and, you know, Samsung had some, some other phones and Motorola. But if you fast forward to now and you're talking about, you know, augmented reality, blockchain, you know, mobile is just a given and desktops have kind of you see how fast in that span of time technology has actually not not just grown but accelerated. The the gap is is bigger now, or the I think the the evolution is faster. The cycles are faster with every year. And so when you think about a human cognition, and I see this as a parent, all of the parenting techniques, I, as I've realized from my parents' generation, are not really relevant today. Like. Okay, we had cartoons on TV when I was a kid, but you didn't have YouTube and you know the idea that your kid could click on something that's inappropriate or just this auto playing YouTube thing. So just as a really silly example, right? So as a parent, I'm realizing, well, almost all of the techniques that you had growing up were not relevant today anymore because technology has completely changed the landscape. And you think about are we really able to keep up with this as humans? Our brains aren't evolving that. Our brains are not between generations evolving at the same rate that technology is. So we're always a little bit kind of behind the curve. So now when you look at over the last two years, especially as the ethics and, and race and gender have really you know, come to the fore in technology, you can see just how you know, badly we've gotten, you know, we've lost our eyes on that. And part of that is due to people being educated just on the STEM you know, side of things, you know, science, technology, engineering, and math, and forgetting about anthropology, psychology, and things like that. And we're having to go back and, and realize that te technology that we've been growing at breakneck speeds, we haven't actually designed uh, very well for today's society. So that's kind of what I mean by, by that technology is outpacing. And, and you see that from companies like Facebook to, to even companies like Robinhood with trading that these well-designed things or, or things that are like, you know, build fast and break things off and approach isn't holding up under the weight of some of the issues we're having in, in society today. So a lot of those things are, are driven by technology as being far too fast for us to keep up with. 
And I mean, do you see it then like solving this fact that technology just outpaces our ability to process it? It sounds like you see that as a design challenge potentially. Absolutely. I think that's that's where my interest came from because we, we shouldn't necessarily slow down technology. It, it just is what it is. But the, the funny thing I also noticed as technology is accelerating is I would talk to these young design students who graduate and say, how do you keep up with this? And I was like, you know, honestly, as much as things have changed around me, the fundamental principles haven't really changed. So a lot of these, you know, the, the social implications of technology, they're not really any different now than they were 30 years ago. They just have different you know, situations that have arisen because the scalability of technology is so vast. So, for example, if you design something and it harms a particular user group that in a way you didn't uh, intend, you know, 20 years ago, you might be talking about tens of users that are negatively affected. You know, today, if you have, you know, if you design something, it could be affecting on the order of thousands or millions of people. You know, we haven't really seen any technology in history that can have that profound of an impact that quickly. But at the root of it, it's still the same principles. It's the same sciences that are involved. And from a design perspective, we're pretty much just talking about the exact same design principles that we've been talking about for decades. So a lot of what I see is just an acknowledgement that uh, as much as technology may change, you almost have to just like stay steadfast in, in how you design for human behavior, uh, just like you did you know, before. And if anything, I would say the design need is, has grown. And you see that in software companies. You see more designers there every day. And what, what's really fascinating is you'll see more people with liberal arts degrees, you know, anthropology, psychology backgrounds coming in and working with technology teams to help those teams understand people a little bit better. So I think that's where the growth is happening. But, but yes, of, of course, I'm a designer by nature. So I will always <laughs> view that that design is the solution. But it makes sense. It makes sense uh, for a lot of reasons that you laid out. I would love to know what is Innovate Map. Tell me a little bit about the firm and how it came to be and what you guys do. It started in 2014. Uh, our CEO, you know, left my my previous company where we met uh, to start it and approached me to to start it with him as the as the lead designer. Uh, and and so I'll be honest now because it's very I understand the vision of the agency today, but I'll be honest at the time when he approached me, uh, my vision for it was nil. I had no vision. I just believed in the passion he had, and I was curious to try something new. And that's about as far as it went. I was spending about five actual hours a week designing software, and the rest of the time filled with bureaucratic management meetings and things like that. And I just had this pretty stupid hypothesis that if I can design multi-million dollar software in about five hours a week, surely I must be able to design for more <laughs> companies at a time. And that was really all, all, all it was for me. But his vision was that, you know, this is 2014 and we started in Indianapolis in the Midwest where we're a few, probably a few years behind, you know, where the, the West Coast is with technology. But at that time, the, the concept of product was still really new. You know, Indianapolis has had a lot of technology success. We've had a lot of major exits here. And then those have been equitable and come back and fed into the community in Indianapolis. And so with that came more startups, more technology companies. But what he saw, Mike Reynolds, our CEO, was that the way to win in the next you know, sort of phase of technology was going to be through product. So are you building the right thing? Is it, is it marketed? Is it, does, it, does it sell well? And is it well-designed? 
before you could get by with just digitizing paper straight up. And my, my first job at AutoCAD, we were designing software that was just digitizing paper. That's effectively what it was. And so and AutoCAD has a great design team, but a lot of companies at that, in that era could just design software to replace paper, low bar. It doesn't really matter how well it's designed. It's going to be better than paper. In the next wave, you'll see more competition. And that's what he saw. So he wanted to create an agency to serve many companies that were not going to be able to bring these roles in-house. So think about roles like uh, VPs of product management, directors of UX, brand designers, you know, creative directors, and product marketers, which in 2014, there's almost like no product marketing to be heard of uh, outside of the Valley. And so the whole hypothesis was, can we build an agency rooted in people that came from software, serving software companies in a new way to help them scale their product successfully before they can afford to bring those roles in-house? And so that was really where it started was we, we believed that was the future and that there weren't going to be enough people to effectively help you know companies in-house create success around that. So as we fast forward to today, I think we, we've had a lot of success where we've you know, scaled outside of Indianapolis now and work throughout the Midwest and East Coast. And yeah, I think what's, what's, what we thought was true is definitely true that that product is the most important aspect of building a successful technology company today. So brand, product marketing, design, and product management. You guys are all about product, so to speak, than the design of it, uh, as well as marketing. What makes a good product? The tagline that we always use, which sounds like a tagline and it will sound cheesy, but I'm going to say it because it's, it's real. Better product is marketable, valuable and usable. So what that means, so from, from my perspective or my, my background is in design. It was really all about making things usable. I only work for large multi-million dollar software companies, you know, in my two you know, companies before starting Innovate Map. I took for granted that somebody was in charge of selling it and making sure the value was connecting with buyers. I just made it usable. Once I entered out into the agency world and we we're working with startups that are just starting, you realize to make something usable, it means that you've actually sold it. And if you sold it, that means that you've, you've made it you know, marketable. So I, I realized that it was all three of those. And so you'll find some software companies do a great job marketing, the usability sucks. So you start using it and, and you just, it's, it's not a delight to use, right? So that's where we see the confluence of product. It's really, if you think about it from like a buyer journey, if you're making a product to put in the market, it's really starting with, have you positioned it in the market correctly? And then are you messaging it correctly through the words you use? Is it resonating with pains or aspirations? And then if it is, do you make it easy to buy? So there's a lot of software companies that do those first things. And then it's a huge pain to buy the dreaded like contact for demo button, which I'm always trying to get people to stop doing like that's a gate to, to buying your product. Then once you buy it, if you get through that process, is it a delight to use? Do you want to keep using it? Do you want to share it with other people? So that's really the journey from a prospect to a customer to an advocate for your product. And so if you can nail all of those, which is possible today, uh, then that's what I think makes a successful product. I love the three elements. And as somebody that's running a marketing podcast, a marketer himself, unfortunately, I'm sure there's a lot of listeners out there that like we have to put what we say lipstick on a pig. You know, we're making something marketable that's really just junk at the end of the day. It's not usable or or more importantly, and, and probably more painfully, it doesn't provide any value. 
or very limited. And I, I definitely sympathize with, with that. I've learned that in sales and marketing that I definitely couldn't do what I do uh, for something I didn't believe in. And I think, you know, they, I, I do appreciate a lot of marketers are doing that for companies they may not, the products they may not love. And that's a really tough task because you're basically asking marketers to do more than they should have to do. I mean, a lot of your marketing should be easy if the product is well designed. It shouldn't, I mean, there's no such thing as selling itself, but it should feel that way. It should feel like when you're marketing something, it sells itself because then it's more authentic. It's easier to write copy. All of those things get easier. But but I definitely sympathize with uh, a lot of the listeners of this that are probably not in a situation where they just love the product that they're in. Right. But it creates an opportunity for the company that they're working for, the organization, just have to figure out the best way to maximize that opportunity or go find something that's more valuable to market. <laughs> so, so you're also a podcaster. So this is one podcaster talking to another. Tell me about your better product podcast and how it got started. So I should caveat this with I'm not a huge podcast listener, <laughs> not out of not liking podcasts, but really out of, I think, circumstance. I have a fairly short commute and I typically like to listen to music when I exercise. So without those two things, it's very hard to get through podcasts. It can take me Monday through Wednesday to get through one episode of anything uh, on my drive to work. So that's that. Now, I'm a huge believer that podcasts in general, audio is sort of next wave. You know, think about blogs about 15, 20 years ago or something like that. That's kind of where, where podcasting is. I also say I was listening to podcasts in like 2008 before, like they were on iTunes and I was listening to like stuff you missed in history class. I still have these like really old episodes. And I'm like, when podcasts got hot again, I was like, damn, I think I've heard of this before. And I, I remember listening to those. So I've always felt there's a lot of opportunity in audio. But for, for me, the podcast was a way to start talking to product leaders. I mean, I'll just, I'll break it down really simply. I... If you want to understand how marketing is changing and how that will affect your brand, you need Future Proof, the podcast from Kantar that tells you how to find growth. Created in conjunction with Side Business School at Oxford University, the Future Proof podcast provides a unique perspective on what truly makes a difference. To understand what's winning in marketing, subscribe to Future Proof, the Kantar podcast now. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm a fan of great products, and the podcast was a way for me to have an excuse to find the people behind those and talk to them. I mean, that was pretty much at the root what it was. The second sort of idea was, it's called better product because my goal is to elevate what better product looks like. I believe that, you know, we're in this massive sea change in technology that, you know, while it may have started years ago, we're still in this transformational phase to get uh, technology companies to take the product side of what they do more seriously. And so I think a part of that is providing more examples of what great product is. You know, it's finding a lot of times when our agency is working with clients, they'll say things like, oh, I want to be like Apple or I want to be 
as easy to adopt as a Facebook or something. And I would say, you know, that's like wanting to learn how to play basketball, like from Michael Jordan or LeBron or football from Tom Brady. It's like, those are great, but they aren't really helpful to the average person because they are exceptional. And so Apple's the same way, right? So I, I was realizing there are actually a lot of great products that you may not have heard of at, at a bunch of different phases. Some, you know, pre-seed, you know, some pre-revenue, some series A, B, publicly traded companies. Why not create a show that highlights those to start showing people that there's actually better product in all different types of industries, a bunch of different markets, and, and in a bunch of different ways. So that's where the, the it started was I really just wanted to have a focus on product, uh, not just the practitioner. There's a lot of podcasts about product design or about product management, the fields, but I wanted something that actually focused on the product and then worked backwards to say, okay, how did you make this? What were the decisions that went behind this to help elevate uh, product to, to people? That's really interesting. And I should give a shout out actually to the group that put us face-to-face, so to speak. We both share, uh, with Share Your Genius is our production partners um, on the back end of, of all this listening that, that listeners are doing. So thank you for Share Your Genius for putting us together so we could have this conversation. They were the ones that helped me see that it was possible. So I you know, definitely give them a lot of kudos. I think it's easier today, but when we started the podcast two and a half years ago, I think wanting to start a podcast felt like an insurmountable like mountain. It's like, oh, yeah, sure. I'd love to climb Mount Everest someday too, but you don't even know where to start. And Share Your Genius definitely helped make it seem real and actually worked on a show that I was actually proud of. Well, you've extended the podcast into the better product community. Why was that important? Well, I'm going to give one more shout out to Share Your Genius because they've been pushing me on community for years and I didn't really understand it, to be honest. So I kind of just let it go. I'm still learning what community you know, really means. And part of it was just my own, you know, kind of ignorance about what people really wanted. But the idea for the community was always there. Can we build a podcast that people enjoyed and then build a community for these people to connect to each other? I, I don't know what it is about me personally, but I always have a hard time <laughs> thinking people want to connect. But then the pandemic happened and I realized just how badly I wanted to connect with people. And I think for me, I just didn't think about it enough. And so when we started returning back to work, like literally in the office earlier this year, we, we had started this community about a year and a half ago. Yeah, so let me back up for there real quick. About a year and a half ago, we were going to have this conference. And that was going to be the sort of like hallmark event to sort of kick off this community. We had speakers, everything planned, a space booked. And then, you know, the pandemic happened and we canceled it. So it didn't happen. And we went all digital, all remote, kept adding people to the community. We weren't really doing anything with it, but it was really this year, once we started returning back to work, when we started trying to grow the community in other geographies, we realized that the people that we were adding desperately wanted to meet each other. And it started to become more apparent to me that what the show did was put the focus on product, not the practice or the discipline which means that the listeners came from all different types of disciplines. We have people from marketing, from engineering, from product marketing, from design, from brand, all listening to it, getting different pieces. And those people are not always talking. Even in the same company, marketing doesn't even always talk to product. Um, I can attest to this. I mean, at Autodesk, our marketing team was literally in a different building than ours was. And it was you know, like a good 12-minute walk to get there. So we never really interacted. 
And then in larger geos like you know New York City, even though it's a large city, they're feeling disconnected. They're not talking to each other. So we started realizing that as we built the interest in education around product, we started to create this multidisciplinary community that people that wanted to talk to each other. So we started diving in to start building out that community. And that's where we're at right now is, is starting to figure out like what are the ways we're going to support the community rather than just a podcast and, and writing some blog articles. That's really interesting. And so like, is the desire to get back to keep things virtual, you know, and distributed or to be in person or a combination of both? This feels like a hot take, but I'm all about in person. Um, okay. So <laughs> if the, the, I mean, I, I think that virtual will supplement, but I definitely want in person to be there. There's just some richness that, that you get from, from having these you know, things in person. But you know, I think virtual has its place and it's more prevalent in this vision for the community than it probably was in my mind two years ago. But in person is, is, is a big piece of it. But I think we need to figure out some better, you know, virtual ways to connect people. Like, for example, we've been asked to create a Slack community for, I don't know, a year. I push back on it all the time. It's like, oh, people have Slack fatigue and all that, but people keep asking. And I'm like, all right, fine. We should, we should do it because people want to do it. But if we're going to do it, we need to do it well. I mean, a lot of Slack workspaces and there's some that there's no activity and there's some that are great. And it's like, I really just didn't want to be one that just kind of languished uh, over time. One something with a mission, with intention. So there will be a virtual component to that too, to, to get people talking uh, about things and connecting with people they otherwise wouldn't have had a chance to meet. Well, it's been fun talking about product and and like both your community building aspects, the podcasts that you're working on. I'd love to switch gears and get to know you a little bit better, although we know that your mom inspired your career. <laughs> but one of my favorite questions to ask uh, listeners or guests that come on is, has there been an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today? I would say going back to even the story I told earlier about learning about uh, informatics from my mom was the, the beginning of a new path for me. I, like, honestly, I struggled in college for the first year and a half. So that helped correct that. But through that coursework, I found this uh, human computer interaction design course. It's 2003. I was a junior and it, it clicked. I've had very few moments in my life where I could say that felt like a Hollywood movie where it felt like the, the skies parted and, and like there was like some harp playing in the background. But like there was a moment in that class where I felt like I had my calling. And I remember going down to the professor that was teaching it and saying, there's something about this class that just I, I get. Could I talk to you about it more like over lunch? I, I think that's you know, stumbled through saying something like that. And he said, you know, what, what, what do you want to talk about? I was like, honestly, I don't really know. You just seem like somebody that knows things and I want to talk to you. And that was pr probably the gist of what I said. And his name was Marty Siegel. And uh, he was ended up, he oversaw the, the graduate program at, at Indiana. And um, he was great. And uh, that, that moment probably changed the course and form like who I was because he took the time to talk to me and, and share what design was and he took an interest in me and challenged me. He wasn't easy on me through my undergrad in grad school, but but he's always been in my corner and it still is today. So I would say that moment probably sort of created the the new foundation for me as a designer, which now, even though I'm not designing anymore, I would say still sort of colors everything that I do as a professional. If you're starting this this journey 
all over again, what advice would you give your younger self? Oh, probably be patient. Um, I've been asked this a lot recently for some other things, and I keep thinking about how impatient I was at the time, just constantly, you know, wondering when things were going to break for me or or when, you know, my ship was going to come in. You know, all these like things you worry about, then you look at your peers and say, oh, he's making six figures already at you know, such and such company. Am I doing enough? Like there was just way too much worry about that. And so I think as a result, I kind of, I did the things I thought I should do, like just worked hard and worked more. And if I, if I had slowed down and I was more patient, I think that would have helped my own sanity. But then I think it would have helped me see too, that building relationships is really the most fruitful, most fulfilling and and most long-term value you can do for yourself. And I would have done more of that earlier on in my career. I do a lot more of that now, um, but early on, um, it was all about the hustle and just working and working more hours. And I realized a lot of that wasn't really that that beneficial for me. It's funny. I mean, a lot of people come on the show and I, I, there's not everyone, obviously, but like there's definitely been a theme in the recent, I'd say, last six months or more of this just be patient or slow down or not be so aggressive. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe it's like youthful aggression or something. I don't know. It's, it's like driving us um, at those early, early years. But it's funny how, how often I've heard something similar or, or in the same vein recently. Well, I, switching to marketing a little bit more, what do you think marketers need to be learning about right now? I don't want to say design again, <laughs> but design, <laughs> but, but, but I would say design. I, I think so that I, this may be a polarizing or maybe incendiary comment to make, but part of the, the reason I say design when we talk about marketing is because I was genuinely surprised when I sort of entered the world of marketing, how poorly design was utilized and understood by marketers. Cause I often felt that they were kind of one in the same. You know, I grew up thinking about marketing through like ad agencies from the outside. And you think about a great Nike ad or a great Apple ad. And then you just think, oh, clearly marketers just like no design. Then you start realizing that's not always the case. And the more I dug in, I think marketers are so focused on the tech stack or the tactics or bounce rates and other metrics like that. And, and I think it's lost sight of some of the other sort of intangible pieces to what can make easy marketing, which I mentioned earlier, which is really, is it well-designed? Are you doing things that are, that are authentic and, and true to, to, to your company and your mission? And so I think design is something I wish marketers honestly really learned about. They don't need to be designers, but they need to learn about it. And a part of that journey might be actually building relationships with the designers of the product that are in your company today or even the designers on your team, rather than seeing designers as you know, sort of functions that serve a role, you see them as value providers. The first time I heard of the word creative used as a noun was through marketers saying, oh, that's the creatives worry about that. And I'm like, even just saying it that way, commoditizes creative and say, well, yeah, every, but what you do is creative as well. You know, they have a particular lens on creativity, but I wish marketers understood design and I think they would see designers on their team more as value providers and making their jobs easier rather than, okay, we've got this email, we've got the copy, we need the banner on the top. Cool. Let's go send that over to the creatives. You know, that sort of mentality, I think, is, is one of the things I think could, could really change in marketing. I'll double down on that. I, I don't think it's incendiary at all. And I think marketers today think about design 
with a little D versus a big D. <laughs> you probably know intuitively what I mean, but like, it, you know, design is, is all of the disciplines coming together to create something like you said, in your words, marketable, valuable, and usable, right? Like I almost kind of blame ad agencies, frankly, like the current state of ad agencies for creating this problem. Cause if you go back in the day when there was truly great advertising, no one was called a creative. You might have an account person, but they were account person and strategist. And you had copywriter that was a copywriter and an art person that was, you know, helped draw the pictures or take the words and bring them to life. And they worked very collaboratively. And now those tend to be kind of siloed functions, if you will, even with inside of a, an ad agency. And I think marketers have just adopted that principle, unfortunately, uh, for everyone. That makes sense. And for, as, a, as a quick caveat, I will tell if anybody doubts my sincerity in that comment, when I'm talking to design students, when they ask me what they need to learn more, I say marketing. So <laughs> it's not, I am not advocating for design. I'm, I work for everybody. So I do say that to that field too, because I, I would say in design, they get very self-centered and think design will save the world and can forget that other disciplines are a part of it too. So anyway, just... Want to give that caveat. I'm an advocate for all, everybody. <laughs> you're speaking my language. I'm a Libra, so I'm seeking balance. It sounds like you're doing the same thing. <laughs> so I got two more questions for you. Uh, on a personal note, are there any brands, companies, or causes that you follow or you think other people should take notice of? Oh, there's so many things. If you think about the word cause, I'd say like from a high level, I think a lot of the, the social and ethics side of technology, people need to be paying attention to if you aren't already getting versed in what ethics is so you you can make better decisions as, as marketers. You think about brands or companies. I mentioned Robinhood earlier. I'll mention them again here because I think that they are the new type of product company, you know, started by whatever their founders are, Gen Z. I don't, I don't get, they're like in their late 20s, whatever that generation is, but they're young founders, ignorant to the way of software from the past. And they started a company that's very different, disrupting, you know, a very old industry, which is, you know, stock trading. And they came in with a mission. And the reason why I say they're worth watching is because it's a double-edged sword, what they, what they've done. There's a lot of positives and some negatives. They've had you know, lawsuits that, you know, you look at headlines that are say, is it too easy to trade on Robinhood? And, and there's some legitimate, you know, questions about how they made it too easy. But on the flip side, on the positive, like, wow, that's the power of design and design thinking and brand. So I think watching them, especially as they're about to go public on the stock market is really interesting to see, will they grow up in a different way? What, what, what does this create in terms of a role model for the next wave of tech companies? So I think that that's one. And then I think if you think about an industry uh, sort of related to fintech would be blockchain. Uh, even though I think it's bigger than fintech, I still think the technology, it's still early. And we're, we went through a wave probably four years ago and we're going through another one. And this mini bubble will burst. But I do think that we're getting closer to what blockchain starting to have some really transformational effects on technology the way that you know HTTP and HTML did towards the late 90s. It took a good decade plus for that to start to disrupt and change uh, the end user experience. But I think we'll be there with blockchain soon. And I think it's important that, that people really understand, at least from arm's length, what's going on. And that's as much as I'm going to say, because don't ask me any more about it, because I won't be able to tell you exactly what it does. That's why I'm constantly learning, because it's hard to understand. 
it makes sense. And there's so many applications of blockchain um, as well, from cryptocurrency, which most people I think think of first, uh, to I, I guess most recently the NFT move. Um, I think blockchain is embedded in that as well. But anyway, well, last question for you. What do you think is the largest opportunity or threats that marketers face today? If I think about it from a threat perspective, it's it's always hard. I, I was thinking about the word threat and it, I was trying to understand, like, is this the only lens to look at things through is because I think the positive version of a threat is like what you said is an opportunity. And so I think there are marketers that feel threatened, at least in the digital, you know, the SaaS space for product led growth and what it's doing, salespeople especially, because they feel like it's a threat to their own job. And I think there's even shifts with marketing shifting to product marketing and product marketing sometimes reporting into product and taking some away from market. So I think if you look at those trends, it can feel a bit like a threat. But I actually think it's a, a greater opportunity because if you can flip that, you actually realize that product and design, as I just said a second ago, with design students, they don't understand marketing at all. And they're actually hungry to understand what it is. So if you can ever step away from the sort of turf war that exists inside of a company and realign on what the mission is and see everybody as collaborators, there's immense opportunities for marketers to collaborate so much more with people on the product side and the design side uh, than ever before. And so that that's, I guess, the same, you know, two sides of the same coin. It, it is a threat to marketers. But I would say it's only a threat in that marketers' jobs, titles, roles are evolving. It's no different than it was for design. Designers today have evolved so much in the last 10 years. And I think marketers are, are in the process of going through that, that evolution. But I think it's a tremendous opportunity because you have a lot that you can bring to the table with new groups. So there may be some marketers that need to reinvent themselves a little bit. Uh, but I think on the on the other side of it is actually a lot more there's a lot more you know, fulfillment in, in your job working with, with new people. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me with support from my team and podcast editors, sound engineers, and writers at Share Your Genius. Find them at shareyourgenius.com. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe on marketingtodaypodcast.com and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners. You can contact me on marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you will also find complete show notes, links to what was discussed in the episode today, and you can search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. 